So for this summer, we've been focusing on, as a church, we've been focusing on the idea of human flourishing. Uh, Jesus, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, is uh, through, and that is Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7, Jesus teaches us how our lives work best when we put his kingdom ethic into practice. In fact, Jesus is going to end the Sermon on the Mount. He wraps everything up and he's tying off his sermon. He says, whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock, on a solid foundation. We want to build our lives on the solid foundation that Jesus gives us. A few Sundays back, we, we, uh, we looked at a verse in which Jesus begins his sermon uh, and he, what he does is he sets out the theme of what the rest of the, the Sermon on the Mount is going to be about. And he says to his uh, listeners, his disciples and people who happen to be listening to him at the, at the time, he says, don't come to think that I have come to a, a, abolish the law. I haven't come to abolish the law, but I have come to fulfill it. But he's going to nuance it. He hasn't come to fulfill the law the way uh, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had been teaching. Uh, he comes to really overturn their perspective. And so he's going to go, go through the Sermon on the Mount saying things like, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you this. And so what Jesus is going to do is he's going to change our paradigm of, uh, of how uh, People in his time and how we think in our day, oftentimes uh, religion, pleasing God works, and Jesus is going to say, no, it actually works uh, like this. And, uh, and he uses this verse. He kind of changes their perspective. He says, uh, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And that's kind of a curious passage, but, but what the, uh, our pastor shared a couple of weeks ago is that he's not, he's not saying hey, we've got to live this life perfectly in order to enter into heaven. He's saying those of us who are citizens of the kingdom, those who, who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, their lives are going to be characterized by a different kind of obedience, a different kind of righteousness, uh, an obedience that is authentic, an obedience that is truly pleasing to God, not the kind that is at the surface or just about behavior or rules, uh, but one that is obedience of the heart. And that is the kind that leads to flourishing, the kind that Jesus is teaching about. And so throughout the rest of the chapter, in chapter 5 uh, especially, Jesus is going to give six, or Jesus is giving six examples of common teaching of the day. And he's going to say, you have heard that it was said. In other words, you've heard your whole life, God wanted this. But I tell you, this is what God really wants. This is what God really demands. This is what kingdom obedience is really about. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, last week was Father's Day, but the week before that we looked at anger. And this work, week we're looking at Jesus' teaching on desire, and specifically sexual desire. So turn with me, Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30, and then I'll pray. Jesus says, You have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you that to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Pray with me. God, our, uh, our culture is a mess when it comes to sexual ethics. Uh, and not that the American church is a whole lot better, Lord. We have uh, certainly 
uh, bought into some of the world's lies. Uh, I think we have made a lot of mistakes in terms of the, uh, our, our American church culture and how we think about uh, sexual obedience. And so, God, we're a part of that, and we have uh, reaped some of the consequences of those kinds of uh, lies in our present day. So, God, I pray that you would help us to get this right. I pray that you would help us to take the teaching that you give us in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30, to think deeply about it, to break it apart, to, to use it to counter what we have always been taught uh, in, in, in ways that will help us gain clarity, and not just clarity, but will help us uh, to flourish, as we've been talking about this summer. Lord, we want to flourish in this particular area. Uh, and so often we struggle in that, God. And so I pray that you would help us to uh, see what you want us to see and to be transformed in the ways you want us to tra be transformed. So I pray that by the power of your word uh, and the power of your Holy Spirit that you would transform us in those ways and help us to be the kind of people that you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. So what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going I'm to try to do something a lot like what I think Jesus is doing. Um, Jesus knew the Jewish leaders of that day had what I would call an interpretive tradition. In other words, they had a, a way of looking at the Old Testament, a way of looking at the Bible and what it meant to be a good Jew, a good follower of God. Uh, and they had added on to it and adjusted their own kind of cultural messages and narratives uh, about what it meant to be a good Jew. And that powerfully shaped, because that shaped their teaching, it powerfully shaped what people had always thought, Jews of the day that Jesus is, is speaking to. Um, and so Jesus, what he's doing is he's saying, you have always heard that it's, it, 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 God demands this, but what I say is God demands that. I'm going to try to do something kind of like that. Not because I, I think I'm going to improve on what Jesus is saying here. I don't mean that at all. Uh, but I think we have done that as a, a, at American Christian subculture. Uh, we've developed our own interpretive traditions, our own ways of looking at the Bible, especially at this area of, of sexual purity and sexual obedience. Ways that I think aren't necessarily biblical, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to give three uh, examples of ways that we have maybe misinterpreted passages like this, or maybe uh, sexual ethics generally, or the way we think about sex. And what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to say something like, you have always heard, or maybe we have heard in our own Christian subculture that this, God demands this, or God thinks this way about sex. Uh, but what I say, and really what, what Jesus says, what Jesus is trying to teach us is this, and we're going to try to... Uh, uh, correct some misconceptions and try to disrupt that interpretive tradition a little bit. So uh, you're going to be able to follow along with me in a, a little chart. You have heard that it was said, but Jesus is really saying. If you like to take notes, it's going to be really easy to do, but if you just want to follow along, uh, this should be able to help organize your thoughts a little bit. So let's go for the first one. Perhaps, perhaps you have heard that it was said, your relationship to sexual sin is the most important thing about you, and it defines you completely. Now, maybe you've never actually heard that from up front in a sermon. I can't recall ever hearing that in a sermon, and I can't remember ever reading that specifically in a book. Uh, and yet, um, I think it is implied in dozens of different ways in the church. And I'm going to give you some, uh, some choice examples here. What comes to mind when I say immorality? When I say that I think that person is immoral, or I think that behavior is immoral. Is it greed? Is it racism? Uh, is it... Uh, cheating, lying. Most likely when I say immoral or call somebody immoral, you're probably thinking sexual failure. Uh, that doesn't have to be. All of those things I just mentioned are technically immorality. And yet in the contemporary Christian cultural dictionary, we tend to reserve the term immoral for sexual failure. It, it, is, it has become something that's so heightened in our subculture that that is the, 
the, the, the prime example of what it means to be immoral is sexually uh, failing. Give you another example. If I were to walk up to the average committed college Christian male, those of you in college, Christi- or college, or college ministry uh, know what I'm talking about here, and I were to maybe sit down to coffee with them or have breakfast with them and say, hey man, how you doing spiritually? Um, my guess, my wager, not everybody, but my guess is a lot of them, a sizable number, maybe even a majority, would be tempted to answer me, not in terms of whether or not they're growing in their love towards others, uh, not whether they've become more generous people lately, uh, maybe not even how you know, their time in the Word is going, how their time with God is going, but I guess, my, my, my guess is that many of them would be tempted to answer almost exclusively in terms of whether or not they've looked at pornography recently, right? Like that has been a, a, a long-standing trend of measuring one's own spiritual development and spiritual maturity in terms of whether or not you've looked at pornography recently, uh, especially among Christian men. I'll give you a, a kind of a related example. We have fight clubs in this church. So fight clubs, if you don't know what that is, uh, we have uh, uh, mixed gender groups that we call missional communities where we get together and we, we do life, we eat together, we get, study the Bible together, we talk about things that we can pray for one another, we, we try to bring people along who, who, who maybe are curious and want to know what it's like to walk with the Lord and those kinds of things. But we also have within those communities we have gender-specific groups that we call fight clubs. And in those groups, uh, we, we get into one another's lives at a, at a little bit deeper level. Uh, maybe ones that are helpfully are gender-specific. We ask each other how time in the Word is going. Uh, we talk about what we're learning. We talk about areas in which we're struggling. And we oftentimes include a, a time of confession or a time of accountability. Now, my guess, my wager... When, uh, when we break out and do our fight clubs, and especially men's fight clubs, my wager is that when the confession time comes around, most of that confession time isn't dominated by confessions of road rage uh, and habitually dithering at work, uh, caffeine addiction, envy of other men. All of those things would be worth confessing and hold each other accountable on. Uh, my wager is that uh, most of that time is spent confessing how we're doing in the area of sexual purity uh, and lust. Women in the church. Um, My guess is that women in the church probably worry very little about their reputation being sullied by uh, maybe a, you know, kind of an indicator, a couple indicators that maybe you're a little bit too materialistic, that you value uh, shopping and things a bit too much, that you you struggle in that area, or that you are, uh, you, you regularly gauge in a little bit of let's pray for this person gossip. Uh, around or that you, you struggle with um, jealousy over, uh, 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 against other women or that you lose it with your kids or you disrespect your husbands. You probably don't worry that uh, your reputation would be damaged beyond repair by those kinds of things. But women know uh, that nothing shapes a woman's reputation in the church like a known history of sexual failure. And nothing shapes your own self-concept uh, in that regard. I mean, how, mu- how many people in the church are dealing with uh, overwhelming sense of shame because they gossip, right? Or because they uh, are uh, struggle with jealousy. My guess is that a lot of people are dealing with lots of shame and, and a lot of that is revolving around sexual failure. Lastly, I have never in my life seen somebody formally, di- I've seen lots of people formally disciplined in churches, but I've never in my life seen somebody formally disciplined in a church because they are greedy. I've never seen someone formally disciplined because they're a racist. I've never seen one formally disciplined because they are uh, a gossip. Uh, and maybe we probably would remove somebody from church leadership for a, 
for maybe something like substance abuse. But even substance abuse, we tend to be very generous with that kind of thing in the church. Like what I mean is that we probably wouldn't let that person lead stuff. And yet we, we don't kick them out of the church. We, we rally around them. We try to get them resources. We try to get them support and counseling. And yet the only time I've ever seen church discipline exercised in my life is when somebody is sleeping with somebody that they shouldn't sleep with, right? Like, and so what does all of this mean? Uh, it means that in our American Christian subculture, we've elevated sexual sin uh, to be the most important indicator of your spiritual condition and your value as a Christian, your value as a person. It's wrong. It's unbiblical. Uh, and, and it's certainly not what Jesus is teaching here. Now, uh, I, I'm, we're going to be talking about lust and we're going to be talking about sexual desire. I certainly don't mean, mean to say, hey, come on, let's take it easy on sexual sin. I'm not saying that, right? So you're not hearing me say like, come on, you know, like what's the big deal? I'm not saying that. Uh, it is, and, and in fact, that's the opposite of what Jesus is teaching. Jesus is about to teach, uh, teach us that we need to go above and beyond. We need to be different from the world in terms of how e- extreme we're willing to be in terms of pursuing obedience in this area. And yet it is wrong. It is wrong for us to elevate it so much that it characterizes us and defines us uh, so completely in ways that Jesus didn't intend. And in fact, in this passage, I would argue that the idea of sexual sin is really incidental to what Jesus is trying to do. Uh, So you have heard that it was said sexual sin is supposed to define you completely, but I think what Jesus is teaching, and this will be on the chart, kingdom obedience goes beyond physical behavior to include our very desires, including sex. Let's look at Matthew chapter uh, 5, verse 28 again. Jesus says, verse 27, you have heard that it was said, don't commit adultery, but I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus obviously uses the example of adultery, and so he's talking about a a sexual uh, mistake there. Uh, But he uses a specific word for lust, that that word that, that the ESV translates lustful intent. It's one word. And I would, I would I question, I don't know if that's the, the best. In the context, lustful intent makes sense. Uh, but that word doesn't have to mean that. What the word, the Greek word is, is, is something called epithemeo. It's made up of two words. Uh, it can be a noun, epithemeia, or epithemeo is the, is the verb form. So it's made up of two words. One, epi, meaning like on or over. It's an intensifier. It means something that is, is strong. And uh, themeo, which just means to wish or to desire, to desire. And so it literally could be translated an over-desire, like an intense desire, a hope, or a longing for something. And oftentimes in the New Testament, it's used of people, and it doesn't have anything to do with sex at all. And in fact, it's used of righteous people. So in uh, Matthew chapter 13, uh, Jesus is going to say to his disciples, uh, Blessed are you who hear and see, because I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous men longed, longed, to hear what you are here, uh, to to hear what you are here, and to see what you're seeing. That word longs, epithemeo, right? Like a lot of prophets and righteous people long to see what the disciples get taught from Jesus. It's not because they're lusting, it's not, and it's certainly not sinning. It's not inappropriate at all. It just means an intense desire for something. Uh, Jesus himself uses that word to characterize his own actions. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus says, "I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with my disciples before I suffer." Obviously, Jesus is not talking about lusting, but that idea, earnest desire, that, that word earnest desire, that phrase, is this word epithemeo. So Jesus is even using it to characterize his own hopes. He's not, uh, he's not sinning in that, obviously. And so what makes it inappropriate? Well, it's the context. Uh, in other words, it's, it's what you're desiring. It's not that you, it's not that you desire something. It's not, even not that you intensely desire something. It's that you desire something that God has not made for you, that God has not given you. 
And I think that, in, and that actually, uh, sometimes in the New Testament, this word is translated, epithemeo is translated to covet. And I think that actually gets closer to the heart of what Jesus is talking about here. It's desiring something that's not yours. Jesus is saying that kingdom obedience, what is he saying in, in verse 28? He's saying that kingdom obedience doesn't just demand that we not take people or things that are not ours. The world recognizes that. Everybody says that, right? Like nobody is questioning that. But what Jesus is saying is that our hearts, it's wrong when our hearts become consumed, when we have over-desire for things that God has not given to us, and we violated his will for us, namely that we be satisfied in him. Uh, and what he has for us in this area of, of sexually, uh, but in other areas as well. And so what I don't want you to miss is that Jesus is giving sex as an example here, but what he's really focusing in on is the fact that our desires should be for what God has for us and not uh, something else. That's what he's after, right? Like it's not just behavior, it's our desires. So let's go to the next Christian cultural misconception. You maybe have heard that it was said, lust is primarily a men's issue. Um, now, I didn't hear the first, the first cultural misconception I've never actually heard said verbally. I've heard this one said verbally. I've heard this one said from up front. Uh, I've, heard this, I've, I've read this one said in books, and, I've, I've, and it's certainly implied that lust, sexual temptation, is something that men deal with primarily, and that women, well, you guys can excuse yourself for this part. Or like uh, this happens at conferences oftentimes. This most often happens at like college ministry conferences that I've been at. There'll be a breakout, men over here, women over here. And uh, men are talking about lust. They're talking about like sexual desire. They're talking about pornography and those kinds of struggles. And women, they're talking about things like, uh, you know, identity in Christ or, or something like that. All the good things to talk about, but it's kind of assumed or even outright stated that women don't really deal with that. Is that what Jesus is teaching here? One could maybe pull a little bit of that from this passage that, and suggest that it's implied because in verse 28 he does say, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So it's assuming heterosexual male uh, looking with lust at a woman who is not his. Uh, but is that really what Jesus is trying to say, that lust is really a, a man's issue, like we imply that it is in the church? I don't think he is. Now, why do I say that? I give two reasons. One, we've already said that really epithemeo just means like an over-desire, and in this context, it's a desire for something that God has not given to you. And certainly women can struggle with that just as much as men do. But even if we're talking about sexual uh, obedience specifically, I don't think Jesus is saying, hey, lust, sexual lust is a man's thing exclusively, and women, if you struggle with that, you're really struggling with the dude's thing, or that there's something unusual about you, uh, and most women don't deal with that kind of thing. I don't think he's suggesting that at all. Uh, and in fact, I think what Jesus, when we break this down even further, what Jesus is teaching is actually kind of progressive, and I think would have been shocking to the people who, who heard him. Um, why do I say that? So Jesus uh, says, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. This word adultery is this Greek word moikeia. Now here, uh, to, to understand the meaning of moikeia a little bit, I, I'm indebted to uh, my provost at OU. Uh, I work at the University of Oklahoma, and our provost is a guy named Kyle Harper, uh, who not only is the provost, but he happens to be a world-renowned uh, scholar of, uh, of, of Roman, ancient Roman culture. And, and early Christianity. And he wrote a, a fantastic award-winning book called From Shame to Sin. And in that book, what he does is he actually traces the history of how early Christians transformed the sexual morality of ancient Rome. Uh, it's a fascinating book, but what he argues is that uh, uh, 
in, in terms of sexual morality in Rome during this time, in ancient Rome, sexual morality was all about status concerns. And it was all about, people were basically divided into two groups. They were divided into uh, people who had status and honor that you could violate. You had to worry about sinning against these people. And then there were people who had no honor and no status that were pretty much non-persons. Uh, these would have been people like slaves or prostitutes uh, and even children under a certain age, which is why Romans could practice infanticide and not think anything about it. I mean, I don't know if you knew that. Romans practice infanticide is a very common thing. And they didn't even think about it. Like, it's just, these are non-people, right? Like, they just don't even count. And so if you were a slave, a prostitute, children under a certain age, you couldn't be sinned against. You couldn't be violated. People didn't worry, you were an object. People didn't have to worry about uh, treating you a certain way, violating you. Uh, and even the religious people at the time bought into this kind of uh, idea. So the word for adultery, this word moikeia, what it means literally, and this I'm pulling from Kyle Harper again, it essentially referred to the violation of a respectable woman. Uh, meaning a woman who was married and belonged to a man. She didn't necessarily have her, have her own sexual agency. Women couldn't commit moikeia. Uh, to, to be a little bit kind of crude in the language, women could be moikeid. They couldn't commit moikeia, right? Like there was no category for that because women didn't have sexual agency in that culture. But it was not, committed, it was not considered moikeia. It was not considered formal, for, formal adultery to have sex with a woman who was a prostitute or a slave. Because why? They didn't count. It was like scratching an itch, right? Like they didn't, they, they just didn't matter. And so unless you belong, this woman belonged to a man, given her some kind of a worth, some kind of a status, she didn't matter. And so you could be religious, you could be moral and have sex with prostitutes and have sex with slaves, which is why, I, I don't, uh, and, and to, to pull this back a little bit, Paul in the book of First Corinthians throws around this term porneia, we often associate with pornography now or sexual morality generally, but Paul is actually speaking about prostitutes and what he's teaching in the church at Corinth at the time is that, look, you guys have this habit of sleeping with prostitutes like it's an okay thing. It's not an okay thing. You've got to stop doing it, right? Like that's immoral. All of these people have worth. And so what is Jesus teaching here? He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And everybody in the audience would have said, duh, right? Like you, you, we know that, like religious and irreligious alike. And in our country, I don't know if you guys are, are aware that most people, non-Christians even, think 90%, upwards of 90% of Americans think extramarital affairs are wrong. You're not supposed to sleep with people who are, you're not married to uh, or like outside of your marriage. That, that they just think that's wrong. And so everybody in the audience would have said, yes, Jesus, we agree. We've been taught that we shall not commit adultery. Why? Well, because you're violating this man's honor. You're defiling his spouse. And that matters. We have to be worried about status. But Jesus says, I tell you, Anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, what's he doing there? He's not qualifying it. He's not qualifying it by saying a woman that belongs to a man, uh, uh, somebody who is a wife. He's not saying that she is a virgin, meaning like suggesting that she belongs to a father, that she's uh, the property of some other man who has authority over her. He's just saying a woman, unqualified. So what Jesus is saying, he's saying, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I say that anyone who looks at a woman, married or not, status or not, honor or no honor, any woman, with lustful intent, has committed moikeia, has committed adultery. He's violated uh, this, 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 this command, right? Like he has sinned uh, in this. So what Jesus is actually doing is he is actually expanding sexual personhood to all people. He's not just saying it's the people that have honor, the people that you know, the people that you have a relationship with. It's the people that we think have no honor, the people that we don't necessarily think have any kind of status or reputation uh, to worry about. And that would include all women in this case. 
And it's actually, it's, it's actually quite shocking when, 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 when you look at it that way, that Jesus is extending sexual personhood to people who had no agency whatsoever and no, and no personhood whatsoever. He's saying they matter. And so uh, whereas we might have been taught explicitly or it's been implied that this means, this, what Jesus is talking about is a man's thing, that sexual agency and sexual purity is really something that men need to worry about and think about. What Jesus is actually doing, and we'll show this on the chart here, Jesus is actually saying that kingdom obedience in the area of sex demands that we see all human beings as mattering to God. All human beings as sexual uh, persons. Why is this important? Well, it means that men and women, when your desire for someone, when you have a desire for something or someone in this case, that God does not have for you, this case sexually, whether that's in real life or on a computer screen, or on your iPhone, or on a TV screen, you objectify that person. What you do is you are treating them uh, like uh, the Romans would have treated them, as non-persons, as objects. Somebody who is at your sexual disposal and it doesn't really matter and it doesn't, God doesn't care. Uh, you're treating them as somebody that doesn't matter to God. When Jesus is saying, no, those people have sexual personhood, right? Like those people matter to God and we will not defile them. We will not defile ourselves. We will not defile them by violating them in this way. Let me turn to the last Christian cultural misconception. This one will go a little bit faster, but I feel I need to clear something up here, something that I've, I've, uh, I've started he- hearing recently in the last couple of years and something I feel like I need to address. You might have heard that it was said in our contemporary Christian subculture that lusting is literally the same thing as actually committing adultery and should carry the same social consequences. Uh, here's why I say I need to clear this up and why this might be kind of confusing. In a few verses, later on down in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is going to talk about divorce. And, uh, and he's going to talk about it. Jesus, said, Jesus is going to talk about how we, we, we shouldn't get divorced. Uh, and in Matthew, we actually get this qualifying statement. It's the only place in the Bible. There's, there's two places in Matthew. Matthew's the only one who does this uh, with Jesus' sermon. He's the only person who gives this qualifying statement. Jesus uh, is going to say, don't get a divorce. Uh, this, this, you shall not get a divorce or, or, it's, or you're, you know, you're, you're, you're violating what God has, but unless in the case of sexual immorality. Um, and uh, implying that uh, divorce is off the table unless uh, somebody is, there's some sort of uh, infidelity or adultery. Well, here's why it gets confusing. Here in this passage, Matthew 5, 27 through 30, Jesus is saying that if you lust after someone, you've committed adultery in your heart. And so someone could make the interpretive leap uh, that if my spouse is regularly lusting after people, say that they are looking at pornography regularly, then that means they're committing adultery. And that means I can divorce them. Or at least I, it's justified. I have grounds to threaten that. I have grounds to kind of say, like, look, you're committing this. The Jesus says this is a divorceable offense. And I am not pulling this out of thin air. Uh, this isn't something that I just kind of came up with. Uh, for one, I, I've recently written a book about, uh, about this issue. It's no doubt why I was, was asked to give this particular sermon on this particular passage. Uh, the book is about how Christians deal with this phenomenon of pornography in their lives. And for one of the chapters, I was digging into some data and I found out with some, with some, quanti- some large survey quantitative data, I found out that conservative Christian women, conser- committed Christian women like we have in this church, are twice as likely, twice as likely to divorce their husbands because of his pornography use. Now, is that because 
Christian husbands are twice as likely to look at porn as, as, as other men? No, absolutely not. In fact, they're significantly less likely to look at pornography than everybody else. And yet, conservative Christian women are twice as likely to divorce their spouse because of his pornography use. Why is that the case? I was fascinated by what, what's going on here. Why, why would that uh, be happening? And so what I did to be able to explore this is I talked to dozens and dozens of couples uh, and married women who, who had experienced this in their own lives of uh, having a spouse who was regularly or semi-regularly looking at porn or had struggled in that area. Uh, and I read a lot of blog posts and read a bunch of books where people were talking about this kind of thing. And I actually found that this is uh, the interpretation I'm talking about is actually a, a, a lot more common than you would think. Um, that uh, these women that I spoke with and read about were saying that Jesus said, lusting is adultery. And adultery is an adult- and a, and a, and a divorceable offense. Matthew five uh, in the thirties. And so I'm justified in thinking that this would be a route I can take because my husband's of my husband's pornography use. It's, 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 it's uh, on the table as an option for me. That is not what Jesus is teaching here. Right? That's not what he's, he's not what he's suggesting. And that is not his point. Uh, I am not in any way. Let me just qualify. Let me backtrack for a second. Uh, lest you think that I am somehow defending husband's who have a habit of committing lust in this way with pornography, that they have, they have, they have done that. I, I am not, ladies, uh, I'm not saying that. Uh, I'm not saying, hey, cut them some slack and boys will be boys. I'm not saying that, right? Like uh, Jesus is about to go into how intensely uh, we should demand purity from ourselves in this area. And so I'm not saying, hey, ease up on the judgment. I'm not saying that. I am saying it is inappropriate Uh, to take this and to say that Jesus is literally saying that if you struggled in this area, it's the same thing, literally, as actual adultery, and it should have the same social, relational consequences as that. Why do I say that? Well, um, well, we we can know that from the context. So Jesus, in the previous verses, he's just talked about anger and relational disruption. He's compared anger to murder. Like, if if you have... uh, if you have uh, been angry with your brother, you're guilty of, of murder, right? Uh, and I don't think Jesus is implying that if we have hated somebody, if we have been angry, uh, that we need to go before the police or we need to go confess that I am guilty of murdering Kevin Durant or the, uh, the entire Golden State Warriors basketball team or Tom Brady, all of which I am guilty of murdering in my mind uh, uh, serially, okay? Like, Jesus is not suggesting that we are guilty literally of murder, Right? And so what Jesus is trying to say here, uh, and, and, and I'm not, again, I'm not easing up on the severity of, of, of what's going on when, when we regularly practice lustful desires and behavior. I'm not easing up on that. But what I am saying is that Jesus' main point, and this will be on the chart, the last point, kingdom obedience in the area of sex demands that we pursue the same level, pursue it, pursue kingdom obedience with the same level of seriousness that we pursue marital faithfulness. And so it's, it is a similarity of intensity with which we pursue that, but he's not equating the two. Uh, and so I, 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 I'm happy to uh, have conversations with that afterwards, but I felt like I need to clear that up because I, I, have, I have seen that interpretation uh, rage uh, in Christian families, um, and uh, I think in an unhealthy way. So I wanted to make sure I cleared that up. So Jesus is demanding that we pursue kingdom obedience uh, in, a, in a radically intense way. How specifically do we do that? Well, he actually tells us in verses 29 and 30. Let's look at that again. Jesus says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. 
And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. What could Jesus possibly mean here? Uh, I see two potential extremes that we could err on. Uh, one would be, obviously, to take Jesus too literally uh, and to start mutilating ourselves. I don't think we're in a whole lot of danger of that. People have actually done that throughout Christian history uh, and, uh, and mutilated themselves because they took this very literally and, and, and very seriously. I don't think we're going to do that, but I don't want us to go the opposite extreme. The opposite of extreme, extreme would be to take Jesus too figuratively here and to say, okay, Jesus is using hyperbole and he's just saying we need to be serious about this. Um, I think we can be a little bit more literal than that. Uh, in the previous verses, Jesus was very literal. When Jesus was talking about anger and having right relations with our brothers and sisters, he actually gets very literal. And he says, if you have something against your brother or sister, if there's some kind of rift in the relationship, before you worship, go and confess. Go and resolve that rift. And I think he's being completely literal, right? He's saying before we get in worship, and if we have something against one another, if we have this kind of relational problem, we need to resolve that so that we can worship because our vertical relationship with God is affected by our horizontal relationships with one another. And so Jesus is being specific and action-oriented. So I think here in this passage, we would appropriately take this a little bit literalistically, not to where we're gouging out eyes and cutting off arms, but I think at the very least, we can take Jesus to mean that we should engage in what I would consider to be, by the world standards, uh, somewhat extreme and radical steps to pursue obedience in this area uh, of our sexuality. And this is something that's fascinated me. I love the, the fact that Jesus stresses action points here. I don't know if anybody caught this, uh, but this has been blowing my mind this past week. I've read this passage for just years and years and years, memorized it, uh, and I have just this past week realized uh, something I'd never seen before. Uh, Jesus do you notice that Jesus, I don't know if anybody else finds this interesting, Jesus starts off talking about the heart, right? Like talking about, hey, kingdom obedience in this area is not just about not sleeping with people and not just about behaviors, but it's about your desire. That's what Jesus is talking about. Like you, not, you, you should have right desires that want what God wants and don't want the things that he doesn't have for you. But when it comes down to practical application, Jesus is not saying, he's not, he's not focusing on the heart again. He's not saying, hey, and you need to think the right thoughts, or you need to meditate on the gospel, you need to think about me and how I never failed in this area. Jesus is saying, cut off your arm and gouge out your eye. Uh, and when we actually look at the Apostle Paul, he does the exact same thing. You don't need to turn here, I'll just have the verse up. But there's a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where Paul is talking about sexual immorality. And he's telling the Corinthians, we need to pursue this. Uh, but when it comes down to practical application, Paul doesn't say, hey, think about the gospel, meditate on your identity in Christ. He says what? He says, 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside their body, but the one who sins sexually sins against his own body. So what are we doing here? Well, I, I love the fact that Paul and Jesus, actually, when, when, even though both of them are concerned with our hearts and our right desires and, desires and not lusting after people we should not lust after, when it comes down to how do we deal with this practically, they get into action immediately. That's how we deal with lust. We don't play with it. We don't dance around, with, dance around it. We flee. We cut off our arms. We gouge out our eyes. All right, so what does that mean practically? I want to get real practical here, and I want to give you some action steps. Um, I'm going to give you a list of just things that I've done. Things, this is, this is a, a part of my past, a part of my history area that I've struggled in. And so maybe some things that I do would be helpful to you and things that you could employ in your own life. And I, I encourage you to do that. Um, one is I, I, uh, I don't have, regularly I don't have internet on my phone. So I have a, I have a smartphone, but it's a dumb phone. 
Uh, I have taken internet off of my phone. It's actually really easy to do. You just go to, uh, you just go to uh, passcodes and you have somebody, uh, a friend. And what I do is I just have a member of my family punch in the passcode that I don't know and put it in an envelope and I turn off Safari and I can't access internet uh, on my phone. And I can get emails and I can get maps and those kinds of things, but I can't search the internet. Um, now, full disclosure, I've actually, uh, I've had internet back on my phone recently because we were traveling overseas in Indonesia and I felt like, okay, in, in the case of emergencies, I may need to uh, access internet just in case I, I need that kind of thing, but internet goes back off now, right? So uh, for the last couple of years, I just don't have internet on my phone. Now, there's a lot of reasons that I do that. Um, I don't want to be distracted by my phone constantly. I'm actually really convicted about being a digital zombie. Uh, I, I, am, I am getting into myself what I would call the practice of digital minimalism and, and, and really trying to minimize uh, how much. I'm on the computer all day as, a, as an academic, uh, and so I don't want to be doing that, continuing that at home. Uh, a couple of years ago, I just started to notice, and this is kind of not on the subject of lust, but on the subject of kind of phones, a couple of years ago, I started to notice that I would just habitually start to reach for my phone uh, at, at times that I just, like, if I felt the, like, the, the, the slightest bit of boredom creep up into the back of my brain, uh, I would reach for my phone. Like, my kids are in the bath or they're playing with something and they're really not entertaining me at the time. And so I, I kind of feel myself going into my pocket to reach out on my phone to do what? To scroll Twitter, or to look at ESPN or grab scores or, or that kind of thing. And I'm just kind of done with that. Like I, I felt myself doing it. I'm just, I'm just over it, right? So uh, uh, that's one good reason to just get an internet off your phone. But uh, this area of being obedient, sexual temptation, the area of looking at something on my phone that I'm not supposed to is no longer an option. I can't get it, right? And so the thing that I have in my pocket almost 24 hours a day, I'm not getting anything that I'm not supposed to off of this. Right? And so I, I want to make it hard. I don't want to make it easy to be able to access those kinds of things. Now, maybe you're saying, well, hey, I need my phone. Most likely that's a lie. Most likely that's not true. I'll call that out. I'm an academic. I'm on the computer all day long. Most of you, that's BS. That's just not true. Sorry, I used BS in a sermon. Um, uh, not a pastor. It's just, you know, I can, I can do that. So, uh, so email Jeremy. Uh, so uh, I, I just don't think that's, that's actually the case, right? Like I think you could probably, if you needed to, get at a computer, or you probably know somebody who has access to that. Most of us don't need internet all the time like that. I, I, I don't. I have found that life is just fine, right? Like maybe I can't Google like, where is Tom Petty from? You know, like I can't, I can't ask random questions of Google that way. Like I, that way I can't, I can't do that. And I don't need to, like my life is fine, right? Like I haven't missed out on anything by that. So I would recommend if this is an area you struggle with, Get off, get, get internet off your phone, right? Like you don't have to buy a flip phone, just turn your smartphone into a dumb phone. It's that easy. Uh, the next thing I do, uh, and uh, this is, I have personal boundaries in terms of the things that I watch and Jill and I watch. Um, I don't watch movies with skin in them uh, or shows. Now, sometimes obviously you get surprised a little, like you, you're watching something, nobody told you that the scene was gonna happen and it's like, whoa, okay, th th there it is. Uh, and uh, and you, it's something that you couldn't necessarily prepare for. But if somebody says like, hey, this is a really good show, gotta warn you, there's like five sex scenes in there and they're really explicit, uh, I'm not gonna watch it, right? Like it's just not something that I wanna mess with or have to deal with kind of fast forwarding through. Uh, and so if that makes me weird, fine. But I don't wanna play with that in my life. Uh, I am also in a fight club. I would encourage you to do that. What are fight clubs? Again, I kind of talked about it at this beginning, uh, but they are gender-specific uh, times that I meet every other week uh, with men in my life who I can be on with whom I can be honest about areas of sexual temptation if I'm struggling in that area. 
Now, it's not that, uh, and, and I kind of implied this at the beginning, uh, it's not that that's all you're supposed to talk about in Fight Club. I, I, would, I, would, I would challenge Fight Clubs. If that's really what Fight Club has become, I think you've kind of missed it. Um, and these days, I'm probably a lot more likely to confess blowing up at my kids or like uh, being insensitive to my wife than I am uh, sexual temptation. But at least I have those men in my life that I can text or I can contact at Fight Club and say, hey guys, I'm going to be out of town uh, at a conference and I'm going to be in a hotel by myself. Will somebody text me, right? Like, will somebody ask me how the weekend was? Will somebody just make sure that I I haven't um, kind of gone off the deep end here and and, and made some bad choices because I thought nobody would watch or because this was just not a, uh, you know, I just, uh, in a moment of of exhaustion or weakness or whatever. And knowing that I have those, uh, those, those people in my life who are gonna ask me those difficult questions, is really helpful. Like, it's, it's really a good thing. I would encourage you to do that. All of these things may look extreme to people outside of our, our faith, right? Like, you, you don't have internet on your phone. Everybody has internet on your phone. That's weird. That makes you a weird person. So be it. You don't watch shows with nudity or sex. Well, how exactly would you watch Game of Thrones? I don't, right? Like, I, I don't know. I don't know that show, right? I, I, I'm not hip to that culture. So, and that's okay, all right, like I, my life is not impoverished for, for, for that, uh, that loss. Uh, and so I don't see that. I don't know. I'm not, I'm, I'm not up to that. Um, you talk to other men. You, talk, you, like, you voluntarily tell other people, uh, hey, I'm tempted to look at this. Or like, that's your business. Why would you talk to anybody? No, it's their business now. Or, like I share that part of my life with them so that I can be held accountable because that may look extreme to the rest of the world, but it's worth it, right? Like it is what Jesus is talking about. It is gouging out your eye. It is cutting off your arm. It looks extreme, but Jesus says this is a glad exchange that we would make. It's better, Jesus says. It's better to gouge out your eye and cut off your arm than to have your whole body thrown into hell. Now, I don't think that like if I mess up in this area, I'm going to hell. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that it is a glad exchange that I'm worth making because my flourishing as a human being depends on me being willing to make those radical steps of obedience to say, God, I want to follow you in this area. And if it looks weird to the rest of the world, then fine. But at least that means that I have gotten this area of my life uh, under your power, under your control, with the kind of desires that you want for me. So let me wrap this up. How do we ensure that our righteousness in this area, in the area of sexual obedience, surpasses that of the Pharisees and the rest of the world, just regular religious people who want to be sexually moral, whatever that means. It's not enough just to not sleep with people who are not our spouses. Almost 100% of Americans believe that you shouldn't do that, right? Like that's, uh, that is not a high bar. Uh, what Jesus is teaching us is that kingdom obedience in this area extends to our desires, and whether we desire what he has for us, whether we're satisfied in him or we're unsatisfied and we want something that he doesn't have uh, for us. We, we, we don't trust him. We believe that this is another way. The world offers something better. No, kingdom obedience says, God, you know what I need and you know what helps me flourish. You know what will make my life sweet and good and my family life sweet and good. And you'll protect me from the things that I don't need. And so uh, we want to, it includes, this kingdom obedience includes the extent to which we are willing to go to make radical, by the world standards, extreme steps to resist temptation in this area. The world sees it as extreme. Jesus says it's a better exchange. Let me pray for us. God, I'm so, uh, uh, I'm so thankful that you give us, you don't just leave us to kind of figure this thing out, but you give us your word, Jesus, that you, you taught us. Uh, knowing what we would struggle with as human beings, 
uh, knowing what we would struggle with even in this culture in our day and age. Uh, and you haven't left us alone. You've certainly give us, given us your Holy Spirit to guide us, but you've given us your word and your teaching. And so, Lord, we want to get this right. Um, God, even the world has some kind of sexual standard. And we have heard in our little Christian subculture all kinds of things about sex. Some of them misconceptions. Some of them uh, wrong emphases or complete misunderstandings about what it means to be an obedient person in this area. And God, we want to bring our lives uh, into submission with what you want for us. It's not just about behaviors. It's about what our desires are for. God, we don't want to lust after things and people that you don't have for us. And we know that that's not just about like willing us to do the right thing or, or uh, trying really hard. We know that we do that in your grace and by the power of your Holy Spirit and with help from other people. But God, it also requires that we take action steps. And God, I, I pray that nobody who is struggling in this area, somebody who is in, in this audience saying, gosh, I, I'm really getting beat up in this area of lust and sexual failure. I'm, I'm wrestling with shame. I'm wrestling with uh, wrong habits, bad habits in my life. Uh, God, I pray that they would not leave here without developing a plan, getting a plan in place to say, okay, this is the area I struggle with. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get rid of my, my internet on my phone. I'm going to uh, talk to my fight club. I'm going to make a, a commitment to not uh, watch things that I know are going to be bad for me. I'm going to go above and beyond what the world says is legitimate, what the world says is reasonable. And I'm going to go to the extreme. I'm going to metaphorically gouge out my eye and cut off my arm so that I can be obedient to you in this way. And it's not because we want to earn our way to heaven, certainly. Uh, it's because we want to uh, have the kind of life that pleases you and the kind of life that allows us to flourish. And so I pray that we would move toward this as a church and encourage one another to uh, walk this path of obedience together. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.